tonight, God willing, we should finish up Esther to include the apocryphal parts of Esther. Last time we spent most of the hour talking about the fact that even though Haman had been killed, the king didn't do anything for about three months. And so Esther went into him again unbidden, this time without a three-day fast. She came before the king. The king says, oh, what do you want? And one of the significant things is the first time she comes in before him unbidden, he says to her, what do you want? It will be granted to you up to half my kingdom. That's conspicuously absent the second time. I take that to be that he is wary because he realizes that she set up his number two guy and took him down. She has become a player in the kingdom. I know Mordecai became chief of staff immediately upon the destruction of Haman. What I don't know is how prominent Mordecai is before the second edict. Because with the second edict, he goes out wearing royal robes and a crown and makes it well known to all of the subordinate rulers within the Persian Empire that A, he's a Jew, and B, he is in power, and C, if you know what's good for you when this thing goes down between the Jews and the anti-Semites, you better be on the side of the Jews. Because if you're on the side of the anti-Semites, you'll make a very powerful enemy in Mordecai. So at the end of that, on the 13th day of Adar, in Shushan they kill 500, and then they also hang the 10 sons of Haman. And then in the rest of the empire, they take out 75,000. And one of the things it says is in that process that the subordinate rulers of the empire either don't interfere or actively help the Jews. They certainly don't help the anti-Semites. So that sort of brings us up to chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. To understand what Mordecai is doing, you sort of look at his actions throughout this entire episode. So the first thing he does is he enters into civil disobedience, sitting in the front of the gates in, in sackcloth, drawing attention to himself, making himself obvious that he's opposing Haman. He sets up Esther, although he doesn't play any direct role in those events, and then he gets promoted to be chief of staff. Once he is chief of staff, he makes himself well known that he is very powerful. And so now what he's doing in his role as second in command is he is cementing this event as an event that is to be celebrated throughout the Persian Empire forever. So this does two things. One, of course, it reminds his own people of the deliverance that they, that they got at that time. But it also reminds everybody else in the empire what happens when you cross 
Mordecai and the Jews. There was no more anti-Semitism in the Persian Empire for several hundred years after Mordecai. So to give you an example from our own time, one of the things that the Civil Rights Movement did to cement its victories is they got Martin Luther King Day inaugurated. And what that does, of course, is it celebrates their victory, but it also lets everybody else know that if you engage in racist activity as they define it from thereafter, you are now going against the order of the empire. So when Mordecai sets up Purim as a holiday, he is not only celebrating the victory among the Jews, which he does, but since the Jews have a raucous celebration everywhere they are in the empire, what it also does is puts everybody else on notice that if you want to come after the Jews again, you need to understand that you're going against the order of things in the empire now. So he's a very, very astute politician. 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. When we get into the apocryphal section, which we'll do in a few, in a few minutes here, some of the things in the apocrypha are the text of these decrees. Now, they aren't really the text of these decrees because they were composed probably in the first century BC, but they are some Jews' idea of what the decree would have contained. Verse 26. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in the matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. Notice who's doing this. Them, the Jews that exist then, their offspring, and everyone who is joined to them. I don't know what that means. It can mean any number of things. It can mean slaves that they've acquired. It can mean sojourners, you know, Gentiles who have joined with Israel. It can also mean people who are sympathetic to them. I don't know which sense it should be taken, but it could mean any of those things. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. The other thing about Purim is it is the first holiday for the Jews since the Torah. When the Torah is given, God instituted a number of feasts, seven to be precise. This is the next biblical feast that shows up in the calendar. So the next one is going to be Hanukkah. This and Hanukkah are the other two biblical feasts that all Jews celebrate. There are other feasts that they do, but those are not in the Bible. This is the first of the feasts in the Bible instituted after the Torah. All the way down to verse 29. 
Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihal, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127th province of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So Esther, in her authority as queen, also gets it into the Persian law books. Not necessarily for Persians, but for Jews. In other words, this, this becomes a sanctioned holiday by the empire for the Jews. It, it's not simply a letter that is circulated among the Jews. It is a letter that is, that's got an official stamp on it. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full accounting of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Right, now this popular with the multitude of his brothers is an important thing to note. Powerful people are not often popular people because powerful people often have to do things that annoy significant portions of the population. So the fact that this says that Mordecai is popular with his people indicates that his actions are not the subject of Lashon Hara among the Jewish population. On to the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is just that, apocryphal. The Apocrypha shows up in the Septuagint, but it does not show up in the Hebrew Bible. So all of these additions to Esther are in the Septuagint, but they're not in the Hebrew Bible. And of course, you all know the Septuagint is a Targum, literally. In the first couple of centuries before Christ, Hebrew was not the common language in Israel. It was Greek. The place was Hellenized. And Hebrew had become to the Jews much like Latin is today to the Catholics. You know, the priests speak in Latin, they read Latin, they communicate in Latin, but most everybody, unless he's a specialist, doesn't read and doesn't understand Latin. It was sort of the same with the Jews and Hebrew. So what they did is they got 70 scholars together and they said, all right, we need to translate the Hebrew canon into Greek so that people can read it. Hence the Septuagint. And it was composed in the third century BC. So between 300 and 200 BC is when it was put together. These additions to Esther show up in the Septuagint, but they do not show up in the Hebrew Bible. The commentary that I read on them indicates that a couple of motivation. Motivation number one, as everybody knows, is the book of Esther doesn't mention God. So you have these very eloquent prayers that are given up, and the idea is we need to insert God into this thing. There's some stuff in there that they regard as explanatory. All indications are that the apocryphal sections were added sometime in the first three centuries 
before Christ. They are not contemporary with the original book. They are in six sections labeled A, B, C, D, E, and F. And what we'll do is we will read each of those sections and we'll put it where it goes in the book. So section A, at least according to this commentary, goes to the beginning of the book of Esther. So it's a prologue, if you will, to the book of Esther. For those of you who don't have an apocrypha, you just have to listen hard. The apocrypha, section A. In the second year of the reign of Artaxerxes, the great king, in the first day of Nisah, Mordokaius, the son of Yarias, the son of Semaias, the son of Kisius, of the tribe of Benjamin, saw a dream. All right, now this is Mordecai we're talking about here. He was a Jew dwelling in the city of Susa, a great man serving in the king's court. That's not necessarily what was going on in the original. It doesn't say that. Now you can infer that because he was sitting in the gates, and you can infer that because he catches wind of the assassination attempt and is in a position that he knows what's going on in the court and so forth. But this is obviously an addition to the text. So again, verse 3. He was a Jew dwelling in the city of Susa, a great man serving in the king's court. And he was of the captivity, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried from Jerusalem with Jeconiah, the king of Judea. And this was his dream. And behold, noise and tumult, thunderings and earthquake, confusion upon the earth. And behold, two great dragons came forth, both of them ready to fight, and their cry was great. And at their cry, every nation made itself ready for war, to make war upon a nation of righteous men. And behold, a day of darkness and of gloom, tribulation and anguish, affliction and great confusion upon the earth. And the whole righteous nation was troubled, fearing the evils that threatened them, and they made ready to perish. Now, if this doesn't sound like revelation to you, you haven't been paying attention. Having something like this written in the first century or so before the Messiah makes it within a couple of centuries of John's writing the Revelation. Some rabbi was talking about the New Testament. And when they got to the book of Revelation, he gets all red in the face and he says, that's a stolen book. You Christians stole that book. And a lot of this apocryphal stuff was floating around at that time in history. So to have something like this written that sounds a great deal, like Revelation, I think is perfectly understandable. So verse 8 again. And the whole righteous nation was troubled, fearing the evils that threatened them, and they made ready to perish. And they cried to God, and from their cry, as it were, came a small spring. There came up a great river, even much water. A light and the sun rose, and the humble were exalted, and consumed the glorious. And Mordecaius, having seen his dream and observed what God had determined to do, awoke and kept it in his heart and sought by all means to understand it until the night. So Mordecai has a dream. His dream, of course, is the outline of the book of Esther. In fact, let's go to section F. It's the interpretation of the dream. And that occurs after Esther 10.3. So let's take care of the dream. So chapter 10, And King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea 
in all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Medea and Persia? Now here we insert edition F. Beginning of Esther, we have the dream. End of Esther, he's saying, everything in my dream has been fulfilled. And Mordecai said, these things are from God. For I remember concerning the dream which I saw respecting these things, and nothing thereof is unfulfilled. The little spring became a river, and there was a light and the sun and much water. The river is Esther, whom the king married and made queen. And the two dragons are I and Haman. And the nations are those that were gathered together to destroy the name of the Jews. And my nation, this is Israel, which cried unto God and were saved. And the Lord saved his people, and the Lord delivered us out of all these evils. And the Lord wrought great signs and wonders, such as have not been done among the nations. Get the flavor of what's going on. We start off with a vision. We end up with a vision. And at least as I see it, the purpose of both of these is to insert God explicitly into a book that doesn't mention God. It's saying all of this stuff happened because of God, which, which I agree. I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's a bad assumption. But the writer of this is sort of nailing that, if you will, in a preface. And by the way, one of the other things, when we're talking about Apocrypha, there are lots of apocryphal books. Most of them are written during the same period that these additions to Esther were written. It was apparently a fairly common thing for Jews to write commentaries on the scripture in the name of one of the characters in the scripture from a first-person perspective. I mean, it's, it's a narrative technique. You've all read historical books that are written from a first-person perspective. So a lot of these apocryphal books are of that character. They're written in the name of a famous character from the first-person perspective, and they are essentially a commentary on Scripture. They are not, however, Scripture. So I'm now all the way down to verse 7, for those of you who are following along. Edition F, verse 7. Therefore the Lord made two lots, one for the people of God and the other for all the other nations. And these two lots came at the hour and at the moment and the day of judging before God for his people and for all the nations. So God remembers his people and justified his inheritance. And these days shall be unto them in the month Adar on the 14th and 15th day of the same month with all assembly and joy and gladness before God from generation to generation forever among his people Israel. In the fourth year of the reign of Ptolemy and Cleopatra Dosithius, who said he was a priest and a Levite, and Ptolemaeus, his son, brought into Egypt the epistle of Puriani, Purim, here set forth, which they said was true, and that Lysimachus, the son of Ptolemaeus, of the dwellers in Jerusalem, had interpreted it. Ding, 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 ding. This is being written in the time of Ptolemy, which is in the first couple of centuries B.C. Now, back up to edition B, which is the second of the edition, and this is the letter of Artaxerxes. And B goes in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. So let's go up there and get ourselves oriented. I'll pick it up in Esther 3, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, 
the son of Hamadath of the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also to do with as seems good to you. Then the king's scribe were summoned, and on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in his own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now to edition B. Now the copy of the letter is as follows. The great king Artaxerxes writeth these things to the princes of 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, and to the subordinate governors. Having become lord of many nations, and attained dominion over the whole world, not as I am elated with the presumption of power, but as one who ever rule my life with moderation and mildness, I desire to establish the lives of my people in lasting tranquility, and making my kingdom peaceable and safe for passage to its furthest bounds, and to restore that peace which is desired by all men. So I am A, humble, I am B, the king over all these provinces, and C, I'm writing this for your own good, because I desire my kingdom to be peaceful. So now we're down to verse 3. But having made inquiry of my advisors how this might be brought to pass, this being how will I establish peace in my kingdom? Having made inquiry of my advisors how this might be brought to pass, Haman, who excels in prudence among us and is approved for his unswerving goodwill and firm faithfulness and is exalted to the second place in the kingdom, has shown us that among all the nations in the world that are scattered a certain evilly disposed people which lets it, sets itself in opposition to every nation by its laws, and which habitually neglects the ordinances of the kings, so that the consolidation of the kingdom honorably intended by us cannot be brought about. In other words, we have got these people in the kingdom scattered around. They don't obey my laws. They don't obey the laws of the empire. And therefore, their existence is hindering my consolidation of my kingdom and my providing peace and safety to all of you. Verse 5, having understood, therefore, that this nation stands alone in opposition to all men continually, observing perversely an alien manner of life in respect of its laws and being ill-affected toward our government, working all the damage it can that our kingdom may not attain to security, we have decreed accordingly that they are indicated to you in the letters of Haman, who is set over our affairs and is our second father be all with wives and children destroyed, root and branch, by the sword of their enemies, without pity or mercy, on the fourteenth day of the twelfth month, Adar, in the present year. That they who in days past, and even now, are malicious, may in one day go down violently into Hades, and may henceforth leave our state secure and unthreatened. This is familiar on a lot of levels, isn't it? Because isn't the charge always leveled against the Jews that they don't assimilate. They follow their own laws. They follow their own customs. And it's really the Jews that are running everything behind the scenes. They're doing things that are detrimental to 
the order and welfare of the Gentile world, and they're doing it in secret. Doesn't this sound like every anti-Semitic rant you ever read? Proving that there's nothing new under the sun. I'm going to vision C, which is the prayer of Esther. Prayer of Esther is in chapter 4, following verse 17. It's the last verse in Esther chapter 4, where Esther sets up and says, Y'all go fast, and I will do so, and then I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. So now this is allegedly what Esther was praying during her three-day fast. And Esther the queen fled in prayer unto the Lord, being seized with an agony of death, and taking off her glorious raiment, she put on garments of anguish and mourning. And instead of the choice ointments, she covered her head with ashes and dung, and she humbled her body with much fasting, and every place of the ornament of her joy she filled with her tangled hair. And she besought the Lord God of Israel and said, My Lord, our King, thou art God alone, help me who stand alone and have no helper save thee, for my danger is in my hand. So she's calling out to God, saying, I'm all alone and you're my only help. Verse 5. I have heard ever since I was born in the tribe of my family that thou, Lord, didst take Israel out of all the nations and our fathers from their progenitors for an everlasting inheritance, and that thou didst for them all that thou didst promise. And now we have sinned before thee, and thou hast delivered us into the hands of our enemies, because we have given glory to their gods. Righteous art thou, O Lord. So what she's saying here is we are undergoing this persecution because in our exile we have given glory to the god of the persians and she is saying that your judgment is righteous she's confessing the sins of herself and her people verse 8 and now they have not been satisfied with the bitterness of our captivity but they have laid their hands in the hands of their idols to remove the ordinance of thy mouth and to destroy thine utterance and to stop the mouth of them that praise thee, and to quench the glory of thy house, and thy altar, and to open the mouth of the nations to give praise to vain idols, and that a king of flesh should be magnified forever. Being in captivity was not enough for them. They have decided to remove us, who, by the way, are the ones who praise you. So that's going to go away, and nobody's going to praise you, and the only thing that's going to be left are idols. Verse 22. Surrender not, O Lord, thy scepter, unto them that be not gods, and let not them that are our enemies mock at our fall, but turn their counsel against themselves, and make an example of them that begin to do this against us. This is right out of Psalms. Remember us, O Lord, make thyself known to us at the time of our tribulation, and give me courage, O King of the gods, and Lord over all dominion. So again, she's asking for help and courage. Verse 24, put eloquent speech into my mouth before the lion, and turn his heart to hatred of him that fighteth against us, that there may be an end of him and of them that are like-minded with him. So I'm going before the king. You need to put eloquent words in my mouth. And what I want to have happen is I want the king's heart to turn against Haman who is fighting against us. 25, but save us by thy hand, and help me who stand alone, and have none save thee, O Lord. Knowledge hast thou of all things, 
And thou knowest that I hate the glory of the wicked, that I detest the bed of the uncircumcised and of any alien. Thou knowest my necessity that I abhor the sign of my proud estate, which is upon my head in the days when I show myself openly. I abhor it as a menstruous rag, and I wear it not on the days of my leisure. So what she's saying is, the king is uncircumcised. I hate being his queen. I hate wearing the royal robes. And when I am now by myself and not out in public, I don't wear them. And in fact, I regard them as a, a menstruous rag. So she's saying that I'm the queen against my will. And by the way, none of this is in the scripture. This is all an emendation, if you will, putting the feelings of a later day Jew on the captivity. Verse 28, And thy servant hath not eaten at the table of Haman, and I have not honored the king's feast, neither have I drunk the wine of the libations. Libations would probably have been wine sacrificed to idols. And of course, this echoes back to Daniel. Because remember, Daniel, when he was taken into captivity, did not eat of the king's table. And so she's saying something similar, but not exactly the same thing. 29, And thy servant hath known no joy since the day I was brought here until now, save in thee, Lord God of Abraham. O God, whose strength is over all, hear the voice of the hopeless, and save us from the hand of them that deal wickedly, and save me out of my fear. So that's the prayer of Esther. We are now moving on to D, addition D, which is her appearance before the king, but it follows right after C. And it came to pass on the third day, when she had ceased praying, she put off her garments of humiliation and clothed herself in her glorious apparel. And again, none of this is in scripture. It doesn't say how she went before the king. And being majestically adorned, she called upon the all-seeing God and Savior and took with her two maids. And upon the one she leaned as one that walked delicately, and the other followed her holding up her train. She is going there looking like somebody who needs support. Then after three days without food and water, that's certainly possible. Verse 4, And she herself was radiant in the perfection of her beauty, and her countenance was happy and lovely, but her heart was stricken with fear. And when she had passed all the doors, she took her stand before the king. Now he was sitting upon the royal throne, clad in all his array of majesty, all adorned with gold and precious stones, and he was very terrible. Verse 7, And lifting up his voice that flamed with glory, he looked upon her in fierce wrath, and the queen fell down and changed color and swooned. And she bowed herself down upon the head of the maid who went before her. So she's got somebody helping her along, and she sees this glorious king radiant in his power, and she swoons before him. Verse 11, And God changed the spirit of the king into mildness, and in alarm he sprang up from his throne and raised her in his arms until she came to herself again and comforted her with reassuring words and said to her, What is it, Esther? I am thy brother. Be of good cheer, thou shalt not die, for our commandment is only for our subjects. Draw near. So the edict that anybody who comes unbidden before the king is to be killed, that's only for the common people. It doesn't apply to the family. Verse 12. Then he raised the golden scepter and laid it on her neck and embraced her and said, Speak to me. And she said unto him, I saw thee, my Lord, as an angel of God, and my heart was dismayed for fear of thy glory. For wonderful art thou, Lord, and thy countenance is full of grace. 
For while she was speaking, she fell swooning, and the king was troubled, and all her servants sought to comfort her. It is dramatic. As I say, it reads like a fairy tale. So the next one is E, addition E, which will be our last one, and that follows 812. This is Mordecai's letter now. So starting in Esther 810, and he, Mordecai, wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent the letters by mounted courier riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now we pick up edition E. Of which letter, that which follows is a copy. This is the later commentator's idea of what that letter would have said. The great king Artaxerxes to the rulers of countries in 127 satrapies from India to Ethiopia and to those who are well affected to our government greeting. Many, the more often they are honored by the all too great goodwill of their benefactors, have become the more proud. So what he's doing is he's setting up his reason for taking Haman down. The more I lifted this guy up, the more proud he got. Verse 3. And not only do they seek to injure our subjects, but being unable to endure abundance, they take in hand to devise schemes against their own benefactors. And not only do they take thankfulness away from men, but also being lifted up with the ostentatiousness of the foolish, they suppose that they shall escape the evil-hating justice of the all-surveying God. Purple prose. Great stuff. Verse 5. Yea, and oftentimes many of those who have been placed in the highest positions of authority have been moved by the specious words of those their friends who have been entrusted with the administration of the government to become partakers of innocent blood and have become involved in irretrievable disasters, these men beguiling the innocent goodwill of their lords with the false trickery of their evil disposition. In other words, Haman tricked me. And the things impiously accomplished through the pestilent behavior of men who thus exercise their power unworthily may be seen not so much by an examination of the more ancient records which have been handed down as by observation of the things near at hand. History doesn't show it, but observation of immediate stuff does. Verse 8. And care must be taken for the future in order that we may render the kingdom tranquil and peaceable for all men, not by relying upon informations, but by ever passing judgment with clemency and attentiveness upon matters that are brought to our notice. So we're back to maintaining a peaceable kingdom. 10. For Haman, the son of Hamidatha, a Macedonian, an alien in every truth from the Persian blood, and one who has fallen far from our favor. Again, there's nothing in the original that indicates that Haman is a Macedonian. You can sort of infer from that who's out of favor at the time this is written. Verse 11. Having been a guest among us, so far enjoyed the goodwill which we display toward every nation that he was called our father and continued to receive the honor of all as the second position after the royal throne. But he, not bearing his proud position, took counsel to deprive us of our kingdom and to deprive of life not only Mordecai, 
who is at once our Savior and perpetual benefactor, but also Esther, the blameless partner of our kingdom, together with their entire nation by manifold chicanery and deceits, asking for them to be delivered up to destruction. <laughs> Good stuff! <laughs> Verse 14. For through these wiles he thought to catch us isolated and to transfer the kingdom of the Persians to the Macedonians. In other words, not only was he going after the Jews, he was going after us. He's a traitor. Verse 15. But we find that the Jews whom this trebly died villain had delivered to destruction are no evildoers, but govern themselves by the most righteous laws and are sons of the Most High, Most Mighty, Living God, who ordereth the kingdom both for us and for our fathers with the most excellent governance. So the Jews are good folks and they got good laws. Verse 17. You will do well, therefore, not to give effect to the letters sent by Haman, the son of Hamadathus, because the man himself who wrought these things has been hanged with all his house at the gate of Susa. For God that ruled over all has speedily rendered unto him the justice that he merits. Now therefore, display the copy of this letter openly in every place and suffer the Jews to obey their own laws and reinforce them so that on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month of the Dar, on the self-same day, they may defend themselves against those who attack them in the time of their affliction. For this day hath the God, who ruleth over all, made to be unto them a day of gladness instead of a day of destruction for the chosen race. Notice the chosen race. I mean, this, this is obviously written by a Jew. 22. Do ye also, therefore, among your commemorative festivals, keep a notable day with all good cheer, that both now and hereafter it may be a day of salvation to us and to the Persians friendly to us, but a memorial of destruction to those who conspire against us. In every city or country, without exception, which shall not do according to these commands, shall fall under our wrath and be destroyed with fire and sword. It shall be rendered not only unpassable for men, but also hateful for all time for beasts and birds. And we're not only going to destroy them, we're going to really destroy them. So there you have the apocryphal chunk of Esther. Would somebody like to close in prayer? <laughs>